I'm Tracy Nicholas, and my co-host, Tanya Carwin, and I are passionate folklore practitioners. To us, folkloring is more than a podcast. It's our commitment to help you connect with your roots and awaken the wisdom within you. Welcome to Folkloring, the podcast that takes you beyond folklore discussions and invites you to actively engage with practical folklore and magic in your daily life. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about making sacred objects at home. And making things at home is really at the heart of folkloring. Creating sacred objects at home from a folkloric and animist perspective is really a beautiful way to connect with ancestral traditions and infuse your daily life with meaning. So, Tanya, have you been folkloring this week? And if so, what have you been doing? Um, I have been folkloring this week. Um, I've been doing a few things, but one of the things I wanted to mention is that uh, I've been taking a pottery class with my youngest daughter, um, and right now we're in the part where it's open studio as opposed to classes, so we could do whatever we wanted. And um, yesterday, I made a whole bunch of little um, Amanita mushrooms for Christmas, which is a uh, like folkloric tradition. We'll probably get into it in a later episode related to Santa Claus and Baba Yaga and things like that. So I'm excited to finish those and hang them over my fireplace this winter. Very cool. Tracy, what about you? Yes, um, I've got a couple of things. One is, I think, kind of skirting the edges of folklore. Uh, <laughs> but in the, the town I live in, I live across the street from a nature center. And every Hall uh, you know, Halloween time, they have what's called the zombie shuffle. And it is a course that little kids run through the entire, you know, park. And there are older kids who are dressed up as zombies. And it's super adorable. And yeah. it's it's so much fun. And I always run over there and take pictures because the kids are the, that are dressed up are so cute. Um, yeah. And the little kids are so terrified that they're going to get caught. And of course, they never do. <laughs> uh, but, so I don't know if that's really folkloring, but it had zombies in it. So uh, yeah, the other, thing, the other thing I did do is, and I don't know why I don't do this more often, because it's so easy, but I made cheese. Oh, yeah, it's it's not hard at all. It doesn't it takes hardly any time and it's so good and you can always mix it up and put whatever herbs you want in there. So I just I forget to do it, but uh, I made time this yeah. week. That's awesome. What kind of cheese did you make? Just a regular farmer's cheese um and I mm -hmm. added some what did I add to it? Thyme and savory uh and marjoram. And yeah, other than that it was just, you know, plain milk, salt. And uh, yeah. this time around, I used lemon juice because I didn't have any buttermilk, but it, uh -huh. it's fine. It worked out fine. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So speaking of making things and creating sacred objects at home and how we can use the act of creating things ourselves to connect with our ancestors and how we've gotten away from that a lot in modern life, right? Yeah, I, I feel like um, our culture really emphasizes consumption. Um, we're taught to consume to what, like keep up with the Joneses or to fill some need that we don't really have. And it, it doesn't really it doesn't really scratches the itch that we're trying to scratch with it. But I have noticed, and I notice in people around me that once you start creating, producing things that, that it gets at the soul of something much more than consuming. Like, even if it's just so simple as cooking your own food or growing your own vegetables, things like that. But what we're talking about in this episode, way more is creating actual sacred objects for your home. There is a, a whole other energy around it than just buying stuff. Right, right. I, I think that we do have this sort of natural instinct to want to to make things. And you look at children, they wanna they wanna draw pictures, they want to create stuff, they want to dive in. And I think that we have been taught a little bit that store-bought is better, right? 
And I think that not only do we think, well, because I'm going to the store and buying it, it's it's better. And then we start to lose the skills to even be able to create stuff. But when you do make those things, you know, it comes with more than just the thing at the end of the day. You know, you have the memories that you've created. You've got the story about why you created that and how you created that and who, you know, worked on it together and, and all of those kinds of things. And it also is a reminder of what customs were, you know, have come before you in your ancestry. Exactly. Creating something, um, it's not just an artistic behavior, which also, you know, when you look at psychology, um, the whole idea of creating things, of being active with your hands in creation uh, has a whole positive psychological effect on people. But it's also that something that brings us closer to the heart of our folk traditions, right? Like mm-hmm. um, a lot of the things that we could be doing have been done for thousands of years. I feel like by doing that, you you honor your lineage and the stories and the wisdom of the past. Yeah, and I think that when you are doing that creating and making an object that you're intending to be sacred it uh-huh. is really you know that can be very meditative it can be a ritual for yourself and you're infusing that item with the intent of a, a sacred experience right when you start out making something with the intention of it to become a sacred object you infuse it with your intentions and your attention. Um, and it becomes a living artifact, I think. Right, absolutely. And then if you look at it from an animist perspective, every object is infused with a spirit of its own. Um, and I think that it, when you create something from scratch with your own hands, fully aware of what you're doing, that it's like giving birth to something new in a in a very real way and imbuing something with its own spirit from the get-go yeah i mean i think that when you are sitting down to make something and you have that intent and, and you're really bringing your intent to life in that object and particularly as you say from an animist point of view if everything does have spirit you're you're bringing a new spirit to life almost and, and it slows you down. I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble meditating and, and slowing themselves down because, you know, we're go, go, go all the time. But when you are slowing down to create something, you're, you're there in that moment, you're present in that moment. And it is a ritual for yourself just to be in the middle of creating And it does tie you back to your ancestors. And I remember as like a little kid, we would always make a Christmas tree decoration every year. And Uh I've still got those, you know, I still put those up on my tree. And that to me reminds me of my mother sharing that with me and creating that tradition with me. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, reminded of, as I mentioned earlier, my daughter and I taking pottery classes um, and we're, you know, we go for like two, two and a half hours at a time. And there is very little talking like like I feel really connected to her and there's a lot of togetherness. But we're mostly like for me, it feels like a two hour meditation. (laughs) and I feel like super refreshed afterwards and, and, you know, ready for the rest of my day. Um, and it's like that with a lot of things when I'm making stuff. When I'm making stuff, I'm often making it at home. And so there's often a lot of interruptions. Um, in this particular case, we go to a studio and this is all we're doing. So it's, yeah, it's a very kind of out of time, out of place situation. But even if you're part of a busy household and you have a lot of stuff going on around you, like snatching five minutes of knitting or jewelry making or something easy that is easy picked up and put back down. It's like a five minute meditation. Right. Yeah. And you know, some things you need equipment to do and you may not necessarily have that or want to invest in that. And there, like you say, jewelry making, that's something that I've got uh, an old, like tackle box that's filled with all of my jewelry stuff. Uh And 
and I'm going to sit down and make it, it's fun to just start to pick through things and see where my attention goes because I'm not, I don't have like, I'm going to put together some steampunk themed earrings. No, I just start (laughs) picking stuff and whatever comes of it comes. And there's lots of other kind. I mean, you can sketch, you can create music, you can, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do at home where it maybe is not necessarily like making pottery where, you know, you, you need to uh, have stuff that is there for that particular craft. Right. I kind of on that point of some things you need a lot of equipment for, I feel like when you're looking at specifically natural crafts or ancestral things, like, so even with pottery, my ultimate goal is to get good enough to just pit fire in our backyard, as opposed to uh, doing it in the kiln. I definitely just wanted to get right like instruction and get some stuff under my belt, but I have been part of pit fires and made little like tiny little pinch pots for that were fired in a pit fire. And it, it's totally doable. And it's the same with like so many crafts like spinning. Yes. If you want to spin on a spinning wheel, you'd have to buy or rent a spinning wheel. Most of this, like I don't own a spinning wheel. The spinning that I do is on a drop spindle, which is possibly one of the oldest tools in that humankind made. And it is literally, you can make one from a rock and a stick. So the point that I'm trying to make with that is if, if we look in our immediate surroundings, often we can find very inexpensive and easy things uh, to make tools and the materials for our crafts. And it depends on where you live, of course. I was talking to a woman who lives on the moors in England and she forages for her wool, which blew my mind. But she goes onto the moors where there is a lot of sheep and they they shed um, their wool naturally or it gets caught on branches and things like that. And she goes out with a basket and she forages for her wool. And then, you know, she washes it and combs it and spins it, which is just outrageous to me because I don't live in like it's too hot here for sheep and there's not enough, you know, will they don't just roam free here. But what I can do is I have a lot of plants that grow wild around me that are phenomenal dye plants. So I go out and collect those plants and use it to dye my wool. So what where I'm trying to get at, actually, in a very roundabout way, is that um, when you align yourself with the nature around you and what is possible in your particular area and for your particular life, you you start to acknowledge the inherent sanctity of the materials that you use. Like if you go out on the moors and you forage for your wool or um, you go out into the fields and you pick weeds to dye your wool, everything becomes just much more important and filled with intent and energy. And it, it, it helps to remind you, or at least it does for me, that you're part of your ecosystem and the nature around you and something bigger than just people, right? Like I could just, you know, buy some acrylic yarn that was dyed with a chemical, but instead, like I'm, I'm looking at a scarf right now that actually needs a little mending, but I did buy the wool, <laughs> but I spun that on my, I spun the yarn on my drop spindle and I dyed it with dock leaves that were taking over our pasture. And it is this absolutely glorious scarf that is this perfect, perfect green color, which is if you do natural dyeing, it's very difficult to get a natural green without over dyeing it, but dock works. <laughs> so yeah, like crafting, using materials that are easy to find around you, I think adds another dimension to creating sacred objects. Right. And, you know, something like a scarf, you may not consider it a sacred object, but because you have that experience of dying and you can just decide that, you know, you, you decide what's sacred and what's not. Right. So for example, I have another scarf similar to that. Both of them I do uh, consider sacred objects. I have a red one that was dyed with pokeberry that grew out of a stump in our, an old tree stump in our backyard. It was an old maple tree that had fallen long before and left the stump and the stump is always filled with stump water. And if you, it's, that's a very Appalachia thing, but using um, different kinds of water for different kinds of energies. 
like stormwater or rainwater, ice, ice melt, things like that, using that in magic. Well, stump water is a particularly protective one. Uh, and then so pokeberry has that same energy going on. So I have that scarf that is dyed red with the berries that grew in the stump water. Um, that's a sacred object for me. <laughs> right, right. Wow. You know, I've got a ton of pokeweed in my yard. And I had heard, I don't remember where I heard this, but I had heard that it can be used as like a magical ink if you're going to yep. need you know, uh -huh. writing spells. And yep. so I've, I've gathered it before and used it for that. But um, I've never thought about dyeing anything with it. But uh, now I'm going to have to because it's all it's a very fugitive dye. The only way it works is in vinegar on wool. That's the only way you'll keep the color for like more than, you know, a few weeks. Everything else, it, it'll fade. Interesting. Yeah. I will, I'm definitely going to try that. That's, that's great. Yeah, you should. It's an amazing color. Yeah. So you decide what objects are sacred and it, it sort that sort of gives you control over your own connection to the sacred, right? Exactly. And, yep. and and I think that that's important. I think that we don't always feel connected to the sacred. We get caught up in our mundane lives, and the car breaks down, or you know something, and we're we're dealing with these everyday things, and we forget about the the sacred, and you know suddenly. It's, you know, night and you're tired and you want to go to bed and you haven't done any kind of connection all day long. I think it's easy to do that. And so yeah. going back and saying, I am going to take time to to create these things really gives you a sense of not only connecting, as you said earlier, to, you know, the world around you and the local place of where you are and the spirit of where you are, but it connects you overall to whatever your experience of the sacred really is. Yeah. And in that moment, even if it is a five minute blip in your day, the act of creating does demand your attention and your devotion. And if, even if you just do it for five minutes, it can be an anchor. Like this is the thing that I'm working on right now. I'm just sinking into that for a minute. This is an act of devotion and intention. Right. Yeah. And when we think about consuming, that's brutal to the environment as well. Uh -huh. You're out there gathering up your whatever plants you are and dyeing material with it. That's a whole different experience, you know, having something made overseas and having to ship it here and yeah. then having to truck it to wherever you're going to go buy it from. And it's just the way that we consume things is hard on the planet. Exactly. Not only that, but then it, it's a trade-off because either you're spending your time, you know, doing this creation or you're spending your time getting money to go get something that somebody else created that isn't going to be sacred. Exactly. Well, I, there's a few things that came up for me that um, I want to address. One is that I think what we're trying to say is overconsumption is an issue. Like just the fact that we're alive means that we must consume, right? Right. I think is is in harmony with nature. Everything that is alive consumes and then returns and consumes and it's a it's a flow that's good. The problem that we're seeing is with overconsumption and specifically an overconsumption to fill a need that is may, maybe not even there or is not what can be filled by the thing that we're trying to consume. Right. Um, there lies the problem where you just start accumulating more and more stuff. I mean, people yeah. talk about shopping therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I hate shopping. I it's I don't ever understand it. I find it very stressful. Also, the whole um apparently a lot of women really love going to Target. Like it gives me an anxiety attack having <laughs> to go to Target. Yeah, exactly. And um, another thing, even within like, you know, crafting has become a little bit more popular, but now we must consume all the crafting materials um, before we can start crafting. And I'm sure you've seen the means where it's like, I spent $600 on yarn and 80 uh, hours knitting uh, for a sweater that I could have bought for 
20 bucks or so, that's completely defeating the point of all this. And that's not to say like, I mean, I just spent $20 on a really beautiful ball of sock yarn and it's and made by an artisan, very lovely. It's not to say that you shouldn't, if you're so called, spend some money on beautiful things that um, that will help you in your crafting. It's just, we must, I think we must guard against this becomes yet another avenue of consumption as opposed to what can I create from nothing? Oh yeah, absolutely. I sincerely believe that some people who say that their hobby is crafting, whatever kind of crafting, what their hobby actually is, is buying crafting supplies. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it, it's much more enjoyable to, as, as you say, go outside and see what you can gather and, and see, you know, because that is a, a fun way to connect rather than I, I can't stand going to craft stores. Crafting stores make me super anxious. Yeah. And part of it is, to me, it always seems like it's very like chemical laden, like it smells uh -huh. And I walk in. And yep. so I don't enjoy it. You know, so I'm, I'm always loathe when, when I start a new kind of crafting. I was creating, I was doing a drawing. And I decided what I wanted to do with the drawing was use ink to create this sort of flowing fur on a dog. And uh -huh. so I had to, you know, go out and get these, you know, ink pad brushes and all of that. And I loved it. I had a great time doing it. And so that was something new that I, I learned how to do. And did I have to buy those ink sponges? Yes, I did. But then yeah. I, I created with it and I didn't just, you know, and, and it took me a while. I practiced and practiced and I was really happy with the way the, the final piece came out. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. And I also want to point out that I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't buy anything ever and that things that are made by other people aren't necessarily a good containers for magic or um, heritage. Um, I'm, you know, I do think that mass produced things have a harder time becoming that. Um, but yeah, support local artisans and uh, things like that. Humanity has always had people who specialized in certain things and you can't like, you can't learn to do any, everything yourself. I do think it's important to learn to do some things yourself. Yeah. And then you have to think to yourself, what, what sounds like fun and not everything right. is going to be fun. You know, some people are going to like to do wood burning or wood carving. And to me, that doesn't sound like fun. I don't want to do that. No, oh, it's so fun. <laughs> I, so I don't like blacksmithing. My husband and his son are very into blacksmithing and we're, we're, they're sort of in the process of accumulating enough stuff to really set up a blacksmith shop at the house. And that is just noisy and smelly and it makes my arm hurt. Like that is not my, but the two of them are all about it. Yeah, I have a friend who's a glass blower and it it's the same. It's it's hot and it's noisy and it's but I will say I went to help him a couple of times. He was creating a huge amount of a particular kind of pendant and he needed help getting it done in time for this event. And it was it was fun because we were doing it together. Right. Would I continue to pursue it if I had to like have a setup in my garage? I would not. Right. <laughs> but the, the experience of doing it together was a lot of fun because we were joking around and music was playing and, you know, it was a good time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I really appreciate the thing like my um, my stepson made all these little hook just from like, I, I guess, old nails that he scrounged around for. Um, he made all these hooks for me to hang my herbs to dry on. And that is amazing. I love those things. I have no interest in making them myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about some different kinds of things that people can consider making for themselves. Yeah. And since we're talking about doing this at home, why don't we start with different charms that you can have around the house that you can create for yourself. Yeah. There's a lot of different kinds of house charms. I think that a lot of them focus on either protection, they're, you know, 
to bring good luck, to bring money. And so uh -huh. I think that those are the, the kind of things people want to have in their home around them to draw that energy toward them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll give you a super simple uh, example of one that ha I have that hangs in my kitchen, which is I don't have rowan growing around, which is kind of a traditional protection plant. But we have hawthorn that grows in the back of our property. It's a native North Carolina hawthorn. Um, and I took some branches from that with like long thorns on them and tied them together in a cross with wool yarn that I dyed red with pokeberries. Mm -hmm. um, and that hangs in my kitchen as a little protection charm. Yeah, I've got a few around the house. Every, every month, at the first of the month, I don't want to blow cinnamon in the house. I know that's so funny how, the, how the, that became so famous for something it's fun right but i've got a cat and so you know i don't want that to be there and so i take a cinnamon right. stick and i put a cinnamon stick on the top of the door frame in the front and the back nice. and that's it takes me two seconds and i do it and that's and then yep. i'm thinking about prosperity and luck and it's easy to do so right. i'm a big fan of the evil eye charms uh Ah. Yeah, my, my father uh, was Greek, and so it sort of feels like it ties me back to, to my ancestors. Wow. And, and I think that's a pretty common one. Yeah, it sure is. Um, I did not grow up with it at all. I think in Holland, that is not, I don't know, I think we're a little bit more like, oh, it's all, it, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. But this is, and this is not really crafting something, nor do I know if it's an Appalachia thing or a European thing, but I do wash my curtains with a little vinegar to keep the evil eye away. Oh, interesting. I had not heard that. Um, and I think, you know, lots of people have horseshoes that they hang up, although there is some debate whether it should be facing up or down. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I know that a lot of people have it facing up to catch the luck. Uh -huh. But then I have also heard that some people say, no, it should be pointing the other way. So well, ours hang with the points up for sure. So that the luck doesn't run out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've certainly, I've made uh, like a protection jar, a witch's protection jar. And I, I, I used vinegar, not any, <laughs> any, <laughs> um, but yeah, bury it out in the yard and uh -huh. uh, I put in, what did I put in? Rusty nails and some pins. I don't rem remember what all, because I made it about a year ago. But yeah, I, I think that that's a, a pretty, you know, common thing that, that people who will, will bury those. And then what else do we have? Do people still have rabbit's foots? Is that still a thing? I mean, I, sometimes you see them on a keychain, right, maybe. Right, Yeah. Um, speaking of keychain, my keychain I made... It's like a little square of linen in, embroidered with the Othala rune um, and stuffed with all sorts of like little, like it has a whole nutmeg in it, some other um, family and home protection things. And it's gorgeous. I really <laughs> love it. And I get a lot of uh, comments on it, which sometimes are not that easy to explain. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is actually, uh, I kind of forgotten about that. I made that when we bought this house and, you know, the it's been, it's holding up. It's been with me ever since. So, huh. yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that in like looking back historically, I think that there are a lot of different things that people have done. You know, you hear about uh, in, in older homes that if they're renovating, they'll sometimes find Mm -hmm. shoes in the walls uh sometimes yep. even animal remains uh, yep. and 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 that goes but that goes back i mean not to say by no means am i saying you should be burying animals in your walls but that is something that goes back like eons and eons and where you know you find horse heads buried under the front doorstep and things like that yeah. yeah, and I think people recognized sort of the sacredness and the symbolism of these animals. And that's one of the reasons they did it. And people were a lot closer to death in their lives than yeah. we are today. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I would not want to bury an animal in my wall, but I've got, <laughs> you know, the ashes of 
my my three dogs and my cat that have passed away and you know i i have them in urns and they're they're pretty and i i don't know i just didn't feel like i could just completely get rid of that and so yeah, that, yeah. you know and their their spirit when i see them i i think of them and i think of you know how happy they made me when they were alive and so yeah it's not yeah. it's not so dissimilar i i think yeah. although I don't have them for luck. I have them, you know, because I feel connected to those animals, even though they've passed. And I think uh -huh. that there was, you know, when you find like a cat in the wall, that was really like they, they were killing those animals to do that. And oh, yeah. so, but, but again, they were killing animals for their food and they were, you know, they were doing, right. uh, and, and when people died, they were laid out in their homes. And so, death wasn't as we weren't as isolated away from it as we are exactly. now yeah exactly um a suggestion that you that we could do now if we wanted to invoke that sort of protection of animals like you could make the shape of that animal in bread and bury that or in clay and bury that under your doorstep or in your wall mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. that's a great idea so let's talk about some other crafty sacred objects uh -huh. now you can do things that you're going to use we talked about sacred garments and dyes and weaving uh -huh. you can make your own candles if if you want yeah and that's fun and pretty easy like you can even buy sheets of um, beeswax that are you just roll them up into a candle. You don't have to heat anything. That is when my kids were really little, we used to make candles like that and they loved it. Um, and it's super safe and very easy to do. Just recently I got a little mold <laughs> that was very inexpensive, a little silicone mold in the shape of a pumpkin. And I made a bunch of beeswax pumpkin candles out of that. They're sitting on my table right now. Nice. Yeah, I've, I've taken yeah. my hand at making soap and right. I've gotten, uh -huh. you know, a mold. I Actually, my mold was uh, Star Wars molds. <laughs> so <laughs> I made Star Wars shaped soap. Uh, but, different yeah. characters, which, you know, brought their own energy when you're using that Darth Vader soap. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> what kind of energy? When would you use that? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, honestly, um, I saved it because I didn't want to use it, right? Because it felt like it had a dark energy. But then yeah. I did use it when I was breaking up with this guy. <laughs> oh, is he smart? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I make soap, um, and not very often because we just don't use it. Like that, now we sound like dirty people. But if I make one batch of soap, that's like twelve bars. Um, so I made two batches last year and we're still working through those and they just get better the older they get. Uh -huh. But yeah, and that was not necessarily for me so much a magical act other than I had a lot of tallow that like grass fed beef tallow that came my way. So I used that to make the soap and it is just phenomenal. <laughs> it's a lot better than regular soap or body wash you can buy. So yeah. I don't... I don't much make my own soap anymore. I do. I make all of my own like lotions and, and uh -huh. you know, that kind of thing. And I, I do make my own deodorant and my own toothpaste, but I don't think uh -huh. those as sacred, really. I just make them because I need them. Yeah. Well, here's something that I make um, in the in the cosmetics realm, I guess, that I do consider sacred, which is um, a body oil. <clears throat> and I usually make it, it's like, um, I make it out of a liquid coconut oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and I infuse it with the lavender from my, that I grow in the garden. Um, and I don't use any essential oils because they're not to say people shouldn't, but there's definitely some particular issues with it. And one of them is definitely over harvesting. You need so much material to make essential oil. So I infuse the oil with a whole herb from my garden. And then every morning, it's like my little morning ritual is that I, I do a whole body oiling with that oil. And it's good for your skin and good for your nerves and all that stuff. But for me, it's mostly an act of devotion to my physical reality. Sure. Now, does yeah. it stay liquid? Do you add a different oil to it as well to keep it liquid? No, it's 
it's one of those um, MTC oils. Is that what it's called? It's a liquid. It's liquid at room temperature coconut oil. Yeah. Okay, cool. I have not seen that. I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's my favorite. I all the like I make a lot of herbal medicine and the oils that I make are all in that in that oil as opposed to olive oil is like I feel the scent is really strong and all the other oils are just really high in omega-6 which is not what I want to put on my skin got it yeah so yeah when we were talking earlier about sacred garments and dyes and weaving and sewing I think that I just want to look back at a couple of examples from folklore uh-huh. that most people will, will be familiar with. And, you know, you think about stories like Rumpelstiltskin, right? Yeah. And I know a story called Auntie Broadlip, which is about spinning. But you have, you yeah. know, another story about there's three women. Yeah, it's like three aunties who... um they like one has a really broad thumb and one has a really fat lip and one has a really big flat foot um and there's this girl that oh wants to get married to a prince or something like that and he says you know you need to spin all this flax for me and i need to know that you're a good spinner before i can marry you um and she doesn't really know how to spin or she doesn't want to do it or she's not that good at it and her aunties come and help her um, and then after the, it's very Rumpelstiltskin esque. After the third night, the prince says, "Okay, well that that is a good job. I guess I'll marry you. Mm-hmm. You can spin for me forever." And then the aunties come out and say, um, "This is what she'll look like if you make her spin all that much. She'll get a really fat thumb from from feeding the yarn, right. the flax through the yeah, and the fat lip from licking the flax, and a fat foot from." pushing the spindle, the spinning wheel. Yeah. But, you know, and I think that it's important to note that as opposed to today where we're not doing a lot of that and, you know, creating garments like that, but that was seen as a virtue in those stories. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, but of, of course, sadly, by the end, it ends up that, you know, of course, the woman's real value was in her beauty. So... <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, and not like in that fairy tale, or maybe in a, a upper class situation, that was what women were mostly valued for their reproductive capabilities and their beauty. Um, but in for the folk in the day to day, you needed somebody who knew how to produce textiles for the family. This says for a man, you needed somebody who knew how to do blacksmithing or to grow food or so when you're looking at it in that sense, I don't think it's, you know, of course, we're looking at very um, strict gender roles and things like that, which is not something that we have to uh, really worry about anymore so much today. But like having skill in something that will make your life and your family's life better is not is not a bad thing. Right, right. So let's talk about making your own spell books or grimoire. Yeah. Because I think that there's a grimoire, there's a spell book, or maybe you journal. And, you know, why, why do we use these and, and what value does it have? Because I think that it's a good way to watch your own journey unfold. Uh-huh. I journal every morning and I have, you know, in fits and starts worked on different spell books. And my problem with it always, and, and you're going to laugh at me for this, is that <laughs> I, I, I'm scared to start because it's not going to be perfect. Ah, uh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't share your love for, like, I, uh, I guess my attention span is too short for things like that. I don't keep a grimoire or a spell book or uh, I don't really journal. I have my, um, to like, I have my book with me always that says, you know, this is what we're eating for dinner this week. And also this is all the things that I need to do. And also I need a doctor's appointment, like, and, but also this recipe and also this quote and like everything goes in there. Uh 
but it's not pretty and it's not organized. But I do have made and still do make my own notebooks, um, which is uh, a fun endeavor and also something that um, does not take, um, the only thing you really need to make that happen is an all in my experience. And the rest is like, you know, I often use just some printer paper and some cardboard off the back of something and, you know, just some embroidery floss to put the book together. And that is a pretty simple, and it gives wonderful results. Even like, even my first book was pretty great. Mm -hmm. A thing that I wanted to mention when we talk about um, making books, we're kind of talking in the realm of um, making your own paper. Um, which gets a little bit more involved, but still takes very, very little equipment to um, make your own paper. But I'm uh, reminded of when my oldest daughter graduated high school, um, she took all her senior year papers and made them into like a paper slurry. You know, she, right. she, she tore them all up, made them into a paper slurry, then made paper out of that. Um, and use that to write to her boyfriend who was in the Navy, which I thought was just awesome, sweet little, yeah, little tinge of magic in there. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, when I say I journal every morning, I uh, do two things. One is I write up my list of what I'm going to do for the day. And when I when I talk about journaling, I really write myself a bullet point list of mantras for me to you know focus my day on having a good positive day and so oh that's so great. yeah i'm not i'm not writing out a big long like here's what i'm gonna think about today and i'm just like believe in yourself uh you know keep creating even if it's hard and and just little things like that so that's my journaling so it's not a big fancy thing and my list of things to do for the day i've got eight areas in which I want to be sure I'm doing something in each of these areas every day. And it's, you know, nice. my, my overall it's a healthy body, healthy mind, healthy spirit, healthy cat, <laughs> uh, you know, supporting myself comfortably, uh, giving back to the world, my gifts. And so in each of those yeah. areas and, and healthy relationships, and I'll write down, you know, like, talk to so-and-so today. And I don't always get everything done. And it's not about that. It's about being sure that I don't lose focus on what is really important to me in life. And I want to remember that I, I want to stop and nurture my spirit or that I'm, I don't sit and write all day long and forget to work out. And so yeah. It's, it's about touching base with the areas that I think it's important to focus my time and energy. And so mine is definitely very messy as well. And it's <laughs> it's not about having it be beautiful or what have you. Yeah. And like I said, I don't I, I don't really have a grimoire because I, I've got a whole bunch of sheets in a folder that I pull out when I want to, you know, do a ritual. <laughs> so that's yeah. So it doesn't have to yeah. be fancy. The other thing is it's so easy to get information now. And yeah. the nice thing about having a physical book is that it does tie you back to when people were really out there, you know, writing down, here's how you make this dye, you, yeah. the, the dye with the pokeberries. I wouldn't have known to use sugar. Right. Would I have gone and looked it up? Maybe. But if you're, you know, out and you're homesteading back in the day, you had to remember how to do things and be able to pass that down. And so yeah. I think, and I do have an example, a folklore example, and I don't know, maybe this is skirting the edges of folklore. I think that <laughs> grimoires really became a lot more popular with the onset of printing. But there is one that has generated a lot of interest, and I think it's almost had become like an urban myth, but the uh, Voynich manuscript. And oh. everybody, you know, is like, oh, we don't know what it means. What can it, what could it possibly be? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I know that one. Yeah. yeah, and it was this big deal for the longest time. And it, um, it actually, it was a few years ago that someone did translate part of it. And I look at it, I had gotten a copy because I, I was fascinated by it. And I started to look at it and I'm like, 
this is a grimoire. It's so obvious just uh-huh. from the images. Yeah. And I was like, how are people not seeing that this is a, a spell book, really? Right. And it was so interesting to me. And of course, when they started to translate it, it was, you know, herbal recipes for different things like that. Yeah. And of course, that's what it was. That's so funny. I, I didn't know you could get copies of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, just like a reproduction. I I hate to admit it, but I ordered it on Amazon. And it's beautiful. It it is a beautiful book. That's so awesome. I should look into that. Yeah. And there's a book that I really want to get. And it's by a man named Owen Davies. And Uh he's brilliant. And he wrote a book about the history of grimoires. And it was really interesting. It was a a deep dive into them. And now he's come out with a second book that is all imagery from grimoires. And it's, yeah, it looks really, really cool. And I really want to get it. That's so great. Yeah, let me know when you do. Yeah, I will. So we've talked about altars. And I know in an earlier episode, we got into a pretty deep dive about altars, but it is, you know, an obvious thing for making around the house. If you're going to have a home or spirit or work or something for your ancestors, you know, or in the garden. And it's just, I think it's important to note that whatever it is that appeals to you, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's, that's what your altar should be really. Yeah. Um, another point to make there is that you could build a altar to ancestors of lineage, specifically if you're trying to learn a particular skill or craft. Like you can build, if you're trying to learn basket making, you, you could build an altar to all the people, the master basket makers that you're basically learning from, even though you know you're not directly learning from them. They are the ones that kill, that carry that skill forward so that you have access to the information right now like there's a lot of things um that were lost but we can we can respect and honor the skills that people carried forward so that they're still accessible to us right now uh and building an altar for that i think is a really a really great way to set your intention of like i'm I'm learning this skill i'm dedicating to learning this skill that's a great idea and, and I think, you know, there are some cultures that have a lot more formal kinds of altars, like, you know, the, the, the Day of the Dead altars. I mean, those are massive and they, they put lots of food on them and they're, it's something that is a community experience. And I think that in, in places like Thailand and Cambodia and Indonesia, they have uh, spirit houses that are yeah. out in the yard for the, the spirits to live. And so I think that yeah. are definitely examples of more formal altars, but what I, I, I suppose it is what you want it to be. And if you have this cultural t- tradition, that's great. And if you don't, build what you want. Exactly. Build what you want and what feels good as long as you're not appropriating. <laughs> right, right. And And if you feel like, you know, you want to work with deities or like you said, the spirits of ancestors or your guides or whatever you call that, you're going to be looking Mm -hmm. for, like you said, with the basket weaving, right? You're going to be looking for Mm -hmm. items that are symbolic of what, whatever God or goddess you, you want to work with, how, how you want them to uniquely help you explore your particular connection to them. And it is, it's walking around looking at what your stuff is or what you want to make to represent those things. Yeah. And this is, I think this is an interesting thing where once you start looking into the folklore, you find a lot of information on particular things to do that um, are, are related to creating stuff and making things that were traditionally used to honor deities. For example, there's a the Mother Hala. There's a you know uh, Mother Hala from the fairy tale is actually uh, used to be a Germanic god. Is still a Germanic goddess who had a prohibition against spinning during the twelve days of Christmas. Uh, there's usually, and it's still like people are mostly women are still doing a um, usually in early December. You spin as to honor the spinning goddess, so you you um, 
commit to spinning so much of of the wool and you're committing to doing that before the 12th days of Christmas or before um, the midwinter, whatever date that feels uh, aligned to you, you commit to spinning that. You commit to spinning every day for those days as an act of devotion uh, and recognition. And th- that's all stuff that we get from from the folklore that carried over to us. Yeah, and there's there's other examples that that is the one that's the one that I do. I have been doing for several years now, spinning as an active devotion to Mother Hollow, which yeah, it's pretty big. And that's that's a good lead in <laughs> to talking about creating seasonal sacred objects and using yes. what is around or what symbolizes part of the year that you're in you, and symbolizes not only the part of the year, but the moon phases or growth times when you're harvesting. And I think that those things are um, a great way to to connect with kind of the rhythm of natural life around you. Yes. So when you're talking about seasonal sacred objects, it's, it's so much not, I mean, often it's not not even about creating, but just about recognizing and picking up and bringing it home. Like, um, you know, right now the acorns are falling. And so we have little piles of acorns all over the house just because they're they're like little jewels. Everybody keeps picking them up and putting them on the table or in a little altar or in the kitchen. Yeah. And then um, also the harvest season that for us just went past, I'm seeing things like I've I have not really tried my hand at this, but making the corn dollies, like of the wo- the woven corn, which I think is mostly a British thing, but you braid or weave the corn stalks together to make like these amazing heart shapes and uh, cornucopias. It's like absolutely amazing. Over here in Appalachia, we make corn dollies from um, corn husks, which are also adorable and cute. But um, yeah, so when you look outside your area and the season that you're in, you can probably, if you start looking at the folklore, you can probably find crafts that people were making from the things that are available around you in any particular Mm -hmm, season. mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of that available because you, you have to jump on things when the, the the fruit was ripe. You had to put up your canning so you would have that for the entire winter. And so yeah. I, I think that it is, when you connect that way, it helps you get back a little bit to, because we're, we're so used to not respecting kind of the nature around us. We have our electric lights. So when it gets dark, that's not a, a time to be quiet anymore. That's a time to get more work in. Or so I think that we we have lost a lot of that. And when you start to look at it, not only how is the rhythm of the day, and um, one of the reasons I journal first thing in the morning is because that's a very quiet time and a reflective time for me. That's not true. Everybody. Not everybody's yeah. a morning person. I just happen to be. And so, yeah. you know, maybe it's somebody is much more comfortable with jotting down, here's what happened today at the end of their day. So uh-huh. I think that respecting those rhythms is, is something that creating seasonal stuff reminds you to do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And also for us now going into the winter season, it is just crafting time, right? right? Not just For me in our family, like the holidays are coming up and we like to make things for each other as opposed to buying stuff. I mean, we buy some stuff too, of course, but yeah, so it's, everybody's been saying, we have a little craft room upstairs in our house and, uh, you know, the kids have been like, oh, mom, is there, where are the glue guns? Where are the knitting needles? Like everybody's scurrying off with their little tools and materials to start making things and it's just you know in the summer like say August I don't have time for any of that because I'm harvesting and canning and planting a fall garden and you know just trying to keep up with everything Um, and right now you know everything like all I have to do from the garden right now is still need to plant my garlic but (laughs) I just have to pick some kale and lettuce and that's really all I need to do so there's a little bit more time to sit around and sit by the fire and knit. Right. Yeah. Know? For me, you know, this time of year, it's I'm, I'm spending a lot of time 
doing yard cleanup because, you know, I have to, I have to maintain because I am living in proximity with other people. So I, I usually leave yeah. the, the leaves in my backyard where nobody can see it, but I do have to clean up in the front. So, you know, there's, there's a lot more of that going on. I didn't, need, I didn't even get to writing yesterday because I was working in the yard for hours. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't. I haven't actually looked at their yard marks. Pretty soon, we'll have to blow some leaves over the garden, so it's not and so it's going into the winter right. covered up. And you know, as I said, I still need to plant my garlic, but I'm waiting for the moon to go to to go past full before I plant Got it. them. So, okay, so maybe we can think of a couple of super easy items that people can create and use as sacred items. And I know one of the easiest things that when people are looking at an oracle is grab the book next to you and turn to page 18, you know, uh -huh. and, and I, I love oracles a lot because I think that oracles are really a backdoor into your subconscious mind. And so, uh -huh. it's, yeah, it's about yeah. how you interpret whatever the, the oracle is. And I, a while back, I made my own version of like, you know, like bones to cast. And I uh -huh. just, I took a lot of items from around my house and decided what those things would mean if I tossed them out. I have a piece of leather that I use. So I just decided what they meant for me. And, you know, them are charms, yeah. some of them are bones, so there's some dice in there. So I think that that is an easy way to go about it if you want to just have that kind of connection to what you're using. Yeah, I, I actually, for me, the way I use oracles, and I think that would be even, like, I like the way you're going about it a lot. Like, I just decide for me what things mean. For me, often when it's tarot cards or runes or or anything I use it as a barometer to check how I'm really feeling like if something comes up with like it's really good and my reaction is like oh yeah actually it is pretty good or my reaction is like no it's not it's not good then like I just got to my own inner feeling a little better as opposed to Am I just reacting to something? I love your idea of making a set of bones from charms and things around the house. I had a friend who was a professional actual uh, stone reader, and she just had little like stones and rocks that she had picked up from rivers or in the woods and stuff. And she was phenomenal at mm -hmm. reading them. Um, and I imagine she had done the same thing where she knew what each rock meant. Maybe it had told her. Um, maybe she didn't just make it up, but yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's great to be able to do that for yourself. I think that some kinds of oracles, like say, you know, reading tea leaves, those people, to me, they're looking for shapes, right? And so they're like, oh, that looks like a bird. And then it, they sort of have this bigger idea of what they've been told birds symbolize. So that's why right. it was fun just getting random objects because like I said, I got to decide what they meant. Right, yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> um, we also, one of the super sacred items to make that I like to make is not work in string or yarn or any sort of fiber. I tend to like to then make my own fiber by um, cord, like making cordage or things like that from natural materials I find around me. But any sort of natural string, like I'm not a fan of nylon thread, for example, but um, any sort of natural string can work. And like tying knots in a particular way, and that might just be your way, like the way you put attention into it. Tying strings with knots and each knot is an intention or um, an emphasis of a of an attention. There's like little rhymes that go with it too that you can find online. And then you just hang those knots around like what are they called? Witches ladders maybe. Sometimes people put feathers or crystals or so in them too. Um, we have a string of those hanging on our door with bells on it. That's actually you should have gone under the protection Right. Uh, charms, right. I guess. Forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so those are some some great ideas of super simple things that that you can do that don't take a lot of time and you know help you make those connections. Um, and I think also in embellishing things, like whether you're painting or drawing 
or embroidery, things like that. Like there's all sorts of uh, traditional shapes that you can put on something and even on the back of something. So people don't, you know, the general public doesn't see it that can imbue your space with. Right, right. Absolutely. As always, thanks for listening to Folkloring. If you liked what you heard, please consider giving us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions or comments or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at folkloringpod at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Instagram. You can find Tanya at Folklore Home Companion on Instagram, where she writes about European folklore and traditional life. You can find Tracy at the Folklore Podcast as the theater, film, and storyteller's correspondent and producing the Stories from the Hearth podcast. Hope to talk to you again soon.